Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the author of Politico's Brussels Playbook, and you're listening to the EU's number one news and politics podcast. Remember, if you subscribe, rate, or share this podcast, we can grow the community even more. So please do that if you've got a spare minute. This week, it's been all about preparations for the EU Leaders Summit that's taking place Thursday night and Friday in Brussels. Now, who knows, those leaders might surprise us, and by the time you're listening to this, everything could have changed. But it looks like there won't be much Brexit progress this week, even though Theresa May came for that desperate dinner in Brussels on Monday night. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, China isn't worrying about Brexit. The Communist Party there is holding its once-every-five-years Congress, and President Xi Jinping announced China's 30-year plan for global leadership. We've got a really fascinating main interview in this week's podcast. It's with European Commissioner Vera Jourova, who talks to us about a lot of issues, and she's got a personal revelation to make off the back of the Me Too anti-sexual harassment movement. But before we get on to that, we're going to talk about a woman who was killed by a car bomb in Malta Monday, a crusading journalist called Daphne Caruana Galizia. I've previously described Daphne as a one-woman WikiLeaks, crusading against untransparency and corruption in Malta, and we'll talk to the Politico journalists who knew her best. We're going to get this episode kick-started by talking about Daphne Caruana Galizia, who was a Maltese journalist killed in a car bomb Monday afternoon. And joining me to discuss Daphne is Paul Dallison, one of our news editors here at Politico, and Harry Cooper, who's part of the Playbook team and the writer of Brussels Influence. The three of us all knew Daphne, who was a member of the Politico 28 list of people shaping Europe. So obviously, it's a really, really tough week and a horrible thing to have happened. And maybe, Paul, do you want to get us started by saying how you first got to know Daphne? I worked with Daphne at the Malta Independent newspaper. I was there from 2000 till 2003. And she was a columnist in that time. She'd been with the paper for quite a long time. And she was a very controversial figure even then. But she always was a, a journalist who really stood apart from everybody else in Malta. I think even then, and I think as the years have gone on, she became a little bit more controversial, but even then she was different to everybody else. She perhaps had access that other people didn't have. And I think she tackled issues that other people were afraid to tackle. Fearless is a good word to describe her, isn't it, Harry? Absolutely. I, I met her when I was in Malta, I think it was in May, and I was down to report on the election, the snap election that Prime Minister Muscat had called, actually in response to the allegations that had surfaced on her blog. And I was really struck by how level-headed and calm she appeared to be, despite the near-daily harassment from people on all sides that she was getting at the time. She was at that point being described as a hate blogger, that what she was a terrorist writing, a ter- is what yeah. some of her opponents called yeah, her. Yeah, no, well. she read it. So there was a huge amount of very sort of visceral hatred towards her. I mean, not helped by the sometimes personal language she'd use in her blog. I mean, she she didn't mince her words. Let's put it that way. Yeah, maybe a little bit more context for listeners who might not be familiar with Daphne's work. So <laughs> she was this kind of blogging phenomenon. Had this column at at the newspaper, but where she was really known and why she was so famous was she got more readers per day some days than there are people in Malta. <laughs> and and I would sort of hear opposition MPs and others talk about how she was almost the only thing that could bring down a government 
in Malta. Mm. But obviously she was very loved and hated and the sort of things that she dealt with were outside of war zones, some of the toughest things you can deal with as a journalist. So allegations around really big money interests, so uh, other governments interfering in Malta, uh, a cash for passports scheme that the Maltese government had been involved in setting up, the Panama Papers, tax avoidance, minimization, fraud allegations. And so that really put her in the, literally in the firing line, didn't it? Absolutely. And as Harry pointed out, there was an election held this year because of her. Mm. I mean, this was just because of her writing on the blog. And she was very critical. On the day she was killed, she'd written a piece about the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, in which she called him a crook. Mm. In her language, she didn't mince her words. Her language was very uh, was very choice. But she was really tackling the top elements of, of government. I mean, what I what I I think that the reason that I I started reporting on on Maltese politics last summer was, in large part, because of the, the stories that were surfacing um, on her blog were were, so, were really quite shocking. Um, and what really got me interested, actually, was when we we first wrote we first mentioned Daphne in our playbook newsletter. Um, the response the next day, uh, we got a call from the spokesman for Prime Minister Muscat saying she's a liar. Don't write. A, you don't trust her. She's not reliable. And of, of course, as a, journal- as a journalist, that makes you more interested, yeah. doesn't it? As a journalist, I was like, well, that's interesting. So that really, for me, was a was a was a. I, I just joined Politico, and it was a real sort of. It's a moment when I I really started to watch what was going on in Malta because there really are some very big question marks that have not been answered, and and Daphne was really for for all of her faults she was really driving this discussion throughout the past few years. And I think that's the difficult thing to raise this week, but it's an important one to mention as well, is that because of the way she did her journalism, it, it doesn't really fit in with a lot of other journalistic outlets. And, and some people in the profession would, would say, well, is this journalism? I mean, a lot of the things she published, we would never be able to put on the Politico website or, or newspaper, for example, because it wouldn't meet our standards of effectively evidence verification and so on and that's a it's a difficult but timely discussion to have given what went on this week absolutely i mean she started the blog because she was felt constrained by having to write a twice weekly column i mean not only was that not enough space for her but also she couldn't go off in the direction that she could do in a blog and as we mentioned a minute ago this piece about the prime minister chief of staff called him a crook twice in the same headline now we could never do that she often didn't have the evidence to mm. back up these accusations. But what she did have was tremendous access and and she had the balls to go out and do it. Mm. And I mean, I would say one of the regular accusations that was levelled at her was that she was she was basically working for the Nationalist Party. She didn't make and she didn't make any secret of her support for Simon Busatil, the, the leader who, who stood down after he lost the election earlier this year. But it is worth considering that in the final few weeks before she died, a lot of her blogging was directed at the uh, new, recently elected uh, leader of the Nationalist Party, Adrian Delia. So she did spread it around where she thought it was. She went fair. for the. She when she smelled something off, she wrote about it. And I think the fact that she she really had very few friends at the very at the end. She she was going for the Nationalist Party just as much as she'd been going for Muscat for for many years. So, well, yeah. maybe not political friends, but what I really remember from her, I went to interview her um, about a year ago now. 
And uh, when we went out for dinner in a really quite quiet restaurant, Mm -hmm. we were constantly interrupted basically by people Mm -hmm. coming over to say thank you and to show their support. And so I think she, uh, maybe you don't call those people friends, but she was a voice for a lot of people who weren't satisfied with how they were governed in Malta from whatever party. And and I think she was was a very pro-EU person as well, Mm. I remember. You know, like she really, like the phrase that really sticks in my mind was she said, over my dead body, will my children be stuck on these rocks? And I don't think it's because she didn't appreciate Malta. Mm. She just saw that there was something better and different that should exist and that her children, one of whom is an award-winning journalist himself, that Mm. they should have access to. I think the other thing to consider is the extremely tribal nature of Maltese politics. I mean, it's a tiny island. Paul, you lived there, didn't you? Um, a tiny island, I, I, the thing that sticks in my mind from my trip down to Malta was you are either nationalist or Labour before you're Maltese. And there's this really, it's like a pressure cooker down there. And Daphne was like right in the heart of this, um, it was kind of like a, a war without violence. It, it felt that, that, that dramatic at the time. Thank you for joining and uh, rest in peace, Daphne. And now it's time for our main interview this episode with European Commissioner Vera Jourova. She's from the Czech Republic, and she really is kind of the commissioner for everything. So a word of warning about this interview in case you experience some content whiplash, because we cover everything from the situation in Catalonia to the Dieselgate scandal around Volkswagen to Commissioner Jourova's own painful experiences of sexual violence. And then on to things like data flows and food quality issues in the European Union. So it's a great interview, but we're going to cover a lot of ground in the next 15 minutes. You became a lawyer in your 40s. That is a really interesting story. Um, The commissioner was uh, falsely accused Mm -hmm. of being involved in an EU funds bribery Mm -hmm. scandal. But anyway, you qualified as a lawyer because you wanted to learn about the system that had caused this problem for you. I wanted to be able to defend in the system where an innocent person can be accused and put to jail and totally destroyed. And I wanted to know how come the law should work differently. You can imagine, till my 43, I believed the law and justice is a system which is to deliver justice to people. (laughs) And I found out it's not true. So I wanted to know how it should work. And, well, you became the Justice Commissioner, so that's a bit of a slam dunk success, I would say. Are there any causes you can imagine going out and fighting for once you're, you're not a commissioner anymore, where you would dive in and use that law degree? We managed to adopt, for instance, the directive uh, guaranteeing presumption of innocence and, and the treatment of the people accused of crime as if they are innocent. It is not so obvious in all the member states that this rule is kept. So these things mm-hmm. were bringing me back to those bad memories. Yep. And it's a, it's a rule of law question as well, mm. isn't it? And that, you know, to go from the micro of your rule of law experience to the macro where we have these situations in Poland, in Catalonia, I think you were even a tourist guide in Barcelona. So what do you feel when you see all of those tensions and fights now mm. between Madrid and Barcelona? I'm sorry that there very probably was not uh, the proper political dialogue between the Spanish and Catalonian side because things uh, simply went too far. And I think that we saw 
mistakes on both sides, mm -hmm. which I hope can be improved now. And gender equality is something that is getting more and more in the headlines. Obviously, there are problems everywhere mm. in relation to harassment, assault, bullying. Like, do you have any advice for women in Brussels or elsewhere about how they can respond mm. to that environment? I'm afraid what we see is that just the peak of the, the iceberg because the women do not report that they have been victims of violence. And there is still that feeling, I am guilty, I deserved it. So now when there is such a strong societal response to this latest case, I think it's, it's very good. Of course, it's bad that this happened, but it's good that the people, the women react. And there is no easy response how to solve this. The law, we, we have the law. We are lacking enforcement of the law. And also, still, we have to work a lot to change the mindset of people in Europe because we have some surveys which show that still a lot of people in Europe think that to beat a woman is a normal, a kind of accepted thing. We are running over the whole year a very big campaign mm -hmm. against violence against yeah. women because, as I said, we have to change the perception of the society that this is something normal. Um, do you have any advice you would give to anyone who finds themselves under pressure from a boss or a colleague, subject to that kind of harassment? My advice would be don't keep it with yourself. Go and find the helping hand. Don't be ashamed to, to say it to someone. There is some kind of stigmatization in it. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember very well the moment when I was in the European Parliament mm -hmm. speaking about the issue of violence against women and there were, I think, 100 women and we had fresh statistical figures that mm -hmm. every third woman has been a victim of either physical or, or psychological violence. Mm -hmm. And I, was, I have some time there because I am sitting and listening to the comments and, and proposals of the members of the parliament and I was thinking about those women sitting there, every third. There must be some sitting here. And I said, I myself was the victim of such violence. I stood up and said I was the victim of such violence. Who else? And no reaction. And uh, I think that uh, now when the women mm -hmm. openly speak yeah. about their it's experience... It's more encouraging now, the Me Too tag and other movements it, that we've It could seeing. open eyes of the, of the society. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, maybe if we switched a little bit to your consumer role now. Mm -hmm. Dieselgate is one thing that gets me mad. You know, I just find it... Disgraceful. And Thank okay. you for sharing this with me. Yes. I mean, every time I walk down the Rue de la Loire, I just think how many minutes are being taken from my life <laughs> as a result of what is being spewed out onto us. But what happens next? How are we going to stop it from going on? That is a strong reason to be upset. The Commission doesn't have the legal power to start any official procedure. But I engaged in a dialogue with Volkswagen and I was pushing them. And is the problem that we can't do collective lawsuits as easily in Europe? as in the United States? Would, would they be acting differently to you if there were a million consumers out there filing a lawsuit? I am sure if we have such instruments, uh, instrument in the EU which the consumers could use 
for joining forces, joining to and going to the court. That's why I am using Dieselgate as an example that we cannot continue like that. And I would like to propose some kind of European class action or, or a collective redress possibility for the EU consumers. It should be uh, done within the package which we will adopt uh, in March 2018. So that's the new deal for consumers? It's the new deal for consumers. I remember back in 2009 when I was still working at the Commission was when the first big push was made to do this possibility to make the collective lawsuits uh, easier. And it was the German CDU who were the biggest blocker. Okay. They're the ones who stopped it the first time. I have a feeling they were involved in delaying it the second time. Are you working on those sort of interests to, to, so that you're in a better position when you put forward this new deal next year? It doesn't apply only in this case that the past lost battles <laughs> should discourage us from trying again. There are many of them in, in the history of the EU. We have to try again. I think now we have the momentum. Dieselgate, paradoxically, is helping us, but also many other cases of massive harm. Now, another area where the consumer meets the political, one of the big divides that we're, we're seeing in European Union debates now is East versus West. And you've just come back from the Bratislava uh, summit that was looking at food quality. Um, if we listen to Viktor Orban, it would, we might think people in the East were eating out of trash bins at the moment in terms of yeah. the, the dual food quality issue. Um, tell us, what, what is really the mood there? Can Jean-Claude Juncker, when he sits down to dinner, hopefully a high-quality one tonight with the Visegrad leaders, you know, it, can an unlikely friendship form there? Can we like, really do some good on the food mm. quality issue? I have very good understanding of the problem of also my country because uh, there is the sentiment that the people in 1990, mm -hmm. when uh, the Iron Curtain crashed, we went shopping to Retz, which is a small town near the Czech-Austrian border, mm -hmm. and we bought coffee and chocolate. We didn't have enough money, or mm -hmm. just just little amount of Austrian shillings. But you knew there was a difference. And that I, we brought it home and, and we put it on the table and the whole family came to look at how Austrian coffee and, and, and Austrian chocolate looks and tastes. And it tasted bloody differently. Mm -hmm. and, and still the people remember that and still they go to shop to buy things across the border. Mm -hmm. Now in 2017, with the single market principle, and single market functioning in the EU, there is something, there is something wrong. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I decided to get into it, I think uh, through the consumer's protection angle, I am well placed, mm -hmm. also as a person from the East. Mm -hmm. I very much appreciate that Jean-Claude Juncker recognized that we have a problem. Now, another issue where there can often be a gap between the uh, intentions and the, the implementation is when we're talking about terrorist or other hateful content that's online. Do you expect the Commission to come out with legislation for flagging and removing illegal content? And what mm. do you think of the German hate speech law? I cannot predict what will happen. The timing is rather short because uh, we should come back if this legislation in the first quarter of 2018 and uh, we said that we will uh, monitor and assess whether the self-regulatory mm -hmm. 
arrangement works well, whether the IT companies have enough social mm -hmm. responsibility mm -hmm. effort yep. to delete in due time illegal content. Mm -hmm. And if this doesn't work, of course, we will look uh, into the German law. Mm -hmm. We must not be passive. Not Now, we almost got through a whole event in Brussels without talking about Brexit. But I have to say that when we got onto the hate speech issue, it reminded me of Amber Rudd, because she's been very vocal on this issue. Um, and then I used that to join up in my brain to Brexit, because another thing she had said very recently was, she, I mean, I don't want to say it was a threat, but I think we can read between the lines. There was a bit of a threat there. Um, and it was about removing UK data from European databases. You know, for example, Europol-related stuff, um, if the UK leaves the union without a Brexit deal. What do you think about that scenario? Is that a real risk? Is that something you're working behind the scenes to, to stop from happening? Mm. I am not that paranoid, mm. I must say. I trust in the Brits. Mm -hmm. they, they will not disappear. Mm -hmm. They will not get to some hostile position towards the EU. I still hope very deeply that uh, we will finally come to a good agreement for, for the future. If the UK isn't willing to accept the ECJ, the European Court of Justice mm. oversight, can they still stay in those databases? Of course, for the sake of uh, continuity and predictability, mm. we will uh, be negotiating in favour of respecting the ECJ uh, rulings, not only in the sphere of data. Mm -hmm. What we have first of all in mind are the citizens' rights. And this is the painful moment in the Brexit negotiations, that we still do not have any good news for the people, for the European Union people living on, on British islands and vice versa. Well, Commissioner Jourova, you have been a great sport. We covered a lot of ground. Thank you very much. Have a good day. And now it's time to welcome back our Brussels Brains Trust to the podcast. Welcome, Lena Rabarus. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. Hi, Alva. Hi, guys. So we're a very old panel. We're all officially older than the man who is going to become the next Chancellor Speak of Austria. Sebastian I, think, I think I'm actually only older by like a month or two. By a month or two. By a month or two. Do we well, really need to speak about age today? <laughs> well, let's speak we about wisdom. To. Let's come up with some wisdom. Yeah. It's time for our EU WTF moment. And the first one, of course, is going to have to be that Austrian election. Now, the far-right Freedom Party ended up finishing only in third place. But still, that was a very heavy right-wing majority in Austria, and it might signal some winds of change when it comes to uh, how countries assemble themselves as blocks at European summits and how uh, issues like immigration are dealt with. What did you guys think when you saw those results come in? There's two things. One is that it was a definite swing to the right. Uh, there are now concerns that Austria are kind of going to join the Visgard group on this whole area of uh, migration, which is not a good sign for burden sharing uh, and probably is worrying a lot of people in Brussels. Um, you know, is there going to be a new kind of powerful block um, getting in the way of, of reform and, and European solidarity? Uh, the other thing is a new young leader uh, in the mix. Um, I actually saw Sebastian Kurz oh, like about 
two or three years ago speaking at the Human Rights Council um, when he was then the, the foreign minister. And people were giggling, giggling behind their desks. And I could see people looking up how, how young he was. Uh, and I bet they're not laughing now. Um, so I think there's this kind of underestimating of youth and, you know, uh, we've seen a rise in, in young leaders like Emmanuel Macron. Then we've got Leo Varadkar in, in Ireland and now and now this. So I think we need to kind of look and see where the future of politics is in Europe. Is it is it getting younger? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's, uh, we hope that it gets younger, but uh, we need it as well to be younger in the mindset, in the openness to the world, in the openness to, uh, to other countries. Uh, during all his uh, campaign, um, two things he kept promoting, uh, the, the, the victory that he managed to ban the uh, Balkan Corridor and the Burqar ban. So it, it, it's really... Well, we know that Burqa ban isn't quite working out the way it was intended. It's really alerting for the communities. It's alerting for the minorities. Uh, Austria has a huge uh, Muslim community and Jewish community. So uh, is this really the, the, the young generation of leadership in Europe that we need? Absolutely not. Now, less important, but in my mind more jaw-dropping, was these scenes around Theresa May turning up in Brussels on Monday for... Uh, I don't know why she was here, let's be honest, that's why I'm raising it now on the podcast. But she came for dinner with Jean-Claude Juncker. They came with their Brexit negotiators and they came with their chief advisors. And the last time that set of six people got together for dinner, it was a complete debacle. And I think that the UK government imagined that Michel Barnier was a bit of a bogeyman when it comes to this negotiation. Turns out, actually, Paris and Berlin are being tougher and Michel Barnier isn't the nasty one. And that Theresa May kind of needs his help and needs Jean-Claude Juncker's help. Um, you got any other insights in why she was turning up for dinner when it does not appear like there'll be any progress at this summit this week? Well, it calls to mind that famous line in Chicago, you know, Velma Kelly in an act of desperation. Uh, yeah, just looked very, very desperate and strange uh, to kind of uh, be coming in the week of when the summit is happening. Um, I mean, there, I think there has been slight concessions from the European side, like this thing that they're going to internally or in the draft conclusions that they're going to internally um, discuss the future relationship, uh, which is some movement, but who knows if it'll actually get into the draft conclusions because we're recording this now before they will have been released, although there are... Uh, we, we've seen the drafts. Um, what I think is very interesting, and I, when I look at the UK newspapers, I don't think there's ever been as much focus on these tiny little meetings at European level as there should have been. Uh, people are looking at, you know, that kiss, that hug heard around Europe, you know, how that kind of is a softening or a, a thaw in the relationships between the EU uh, and, and Britain. And maybe that is the case, uh, but I still think that we're not going to reach a deal by December. It doesn't look likely. Um, I mean, maybe I'll eat Bill my Logan words. certainly thinks so. He was speaking Tuesday night. He's the commissioner from Ireland here in Brussels, and he essentially said there's no common sense left in this debate. Uh, Britain can't be trusted to come up with any workable solutions for Ireland, and he doesn't think that there will be a result in December unless something really serious changes very soon. 
Lena? Well, I, this is the word of politics and diplomacy, and such dinners and breakfasts and encounters are essential to keep the channels open, to keep uh, amicable uh, kind of relationship. Uh, we're we're over-analyzing every, as just Alva said, uh, every mimic, every gesture. But uh, this is normal. Uh, people sit and talk in, in during informal hours and non-official hours is where where you reach the, the best deals not during where all the the journals and where all the politicians around you so it's good why not keep the communication going and keep the channels co coming with one comment or with one gesture from either side i think it it, it can really um it channel uh, the course of negotiations so it's just normal let's not over analyze it really speaking of important breakfasts we had commissioner vera Jourova who is the commissioner from the Czech Republic and also the commissioner for gender equality. She came and did an interview with me Wednesday morning in Brussels. And I think we need to reward her a big thumbs up because Yay! she said something very brave. She said that she had been a victim of sexual violence, an issue that we've tackled on this podcast before in the Dear Politico section. And she said that women who've been in similar situations, whether violence or not, uh, should come forward, report it, uh, take a helping hand and not be afraid to to find other people to, to get strength and, and 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 bring this really into public discussion. Pure example of leading by uh, by example. Um, really thumbs up, uh, Commissioner Jerova, and uh, we do hope that other women uh, leaders uh, step up and uh, speak up and encourage um, on all levels, whether on the middle management or the entry level or the the high top level to to speak, uh, not to be afraid, and uh, to challenge uh, the, 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 the society, the culture. Um, so thank you so much that, uh, that you made that, and we hope that more um, uh, female commissioners step up as well and speak. Yeah, I think it's um, one of the things that we talk about often in this in this podcast is that kind of sexual harassment in the workplace. And I think it is one of the places where it's the most difficult to address. So, yeah, I think it's a big thumbs up from her, but I would love to, to hear from other people doing that. We get letters in from people all the time in the parliament saying that they're being sexually harassed by either their boss, who may be an MEP, uh, or by other people. Um, so that seems to be some kind of horrible social currency in 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 Brussels that we need to kind of uh, look at and as I think you said to her um, Ryan you know she is a highly paid person she's up at the top and she has the ability to say that you know she in, in some ways it makes her more able to stand up and, uh, and, and say something uh, but I hope that this is a leading by example and that anybody who put is is put in that position now knows you know, people know about this now, especially after the hashtag Me Too movement that was really active this week. Uh, you can say something, people will believe you, uh, and people know what's happening, even at the highest levels. Absolutely. So if you have a story where you have experienced bullying, harassment, violence, whatever that story is, uh, you can absolutely share that in confidence via the email address playbook at politico.eu. Um, and we will we will do what we can to give a voice uh, to those experiences. So please do feel free. Uh, now, let's go on to our Dear Politico advice section. Uh, we've got another letter in this week. It's a tricky one. Uh, so I'll, I'll read it out. Of course, it's anonymous again, because a lot of people uh, don't feel able to reveal their position when they come to us with these problems. And the letter is, Dear Politico, I am a Spanish assistant working in the European Parliament. I work for a Spanish MEP, and this is where my problem starts. 
Like my boss, I do not want Catalonia to become independent, but here our agreement ends. My boss is very favorable to the actions of the Spanish government, but I sympathize with the Catalans who want to vote. It may be because one of my parents is originally from there, or maybe just because I like democracy, but I think people should be allowed to vote, and I do not like to see photos of cops hitting older people trying to vote. I'm afraid if I talk at work, then my boss will take it very badly. I even think if I tell my colleagues how I feel, they could tell my boss. How should I behave in the office? And would it be all right if I joined the next Catalan demonstration in Brussels? Or should I think about my career? I... Yeah, I very much sympathise with this because I uh, yeah, previously used to, to work for the Irish government and obviously there's things that you can't say as, a, as a, a public servant. I mean, you're not a public servant, you're an MEP's assistant, but also I suppose you're kind of assumed to be in line with the political thinking of, of your MEP. You're presumed to support them uh, in, in what their politics are. Uh, on this issue and doesn't everything seem to come back to the Catalan crisis these days uh, on the podcast? But, um, I mean, there's a way of addressing this. And I think uh, if he has such a, a hardline view, the way to say things is you may maybe as a devil's advocate. I think the way that you've described it is, is totally reasonable. Uh, you are in line with him in some ways. But the likelihood is that no one will ever know that you went unless you tweet, you know? I'm sorry for, for this. It's really tricky, uh, tricky one. Um, look, you chose to, to be in this job and uh, being an MEP assistant, uh, assistant come with its package. Um, if, if you would like to, to keep uh, your career and uh, be in line with your MEP, then you might as well just uh, swallow it and uh, write in, in, a, in your diaries, speak among friends, um, um, well, there's, an, there's another way to speak out, maybe, yeah, without going to without the Without to the protest, public. and uh, otherwise, if you are very strong about the, the Catalan um, issue, uh, just to change jobs uh, or go and have a straight talk with, with your MEP, if I were you, I would do that, and I sit over a coffee and I say, hey, listen, I have a different point of view than you, I encourage this, these are my principles, this is where I stand, but yet again, I respect you, clear the air, and, uh, and be... But it, again, uh, you chose this job and uh, you need to, to take uh, the package. Alba? I think it's interesting that there was a line in the email saying that you think if you told your colleagues that they would then tell your boss. They're not your friends. Uh, well, I mean, I think that's that's interesting that you think that they would kind of, I don't know, almost rat you out. It obviously is an area of sensitivity within your workplace and your best place to judge that. So it's very difficult for us to kind of look at something with our, with our principles and our values and say that you should do the same thing. I think if you really think that people would go behind your back and tell your boss about this, then maybe there's a sensitivity there and there's a way of addressing it that isn't kind of an outright argument, but is, you know, taking the kind of yet yeah, devil's advocate approach and saying, you know, I also agree with you, but yada, yada, yada about, about police brutality and the right to vote. And a word of context for listeners, uh, the way most contracts at the European Parliament work is that uh, your employment is dependent on the trust of your boss. So if your boss decides that he or she no longer trusts you for whatever political, personal, operational reason, you you really can be gone tomorrow. And, and that's the, the difficulty the, yeah. the person writing to us is, is, is trying to get across there. Okay, well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thanks again so much for listening. 
If you have the chance to subscribe, please do it. You'll never have to search for us again. It will just come to you on your phone, on your computer, like magic each week. Uh, podcasting is also a team effort, so this is where I give a big shout out to Rosie Belson, Andrew Gray, and Wei Dongling for everything they do to make EU Confidential possible.